Well, Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we approach your word today. I approach your word today, Lord, with great thanksgiving and praise. Lord, I thank you so much that you've given us such a sure guide that we need not question where we are going to get wisdom to make it through this life, that you have given us a sure word of prophecy, that you have given us a clear guide for our feet, for our path. Lord, thank you, Lord, for your word today. I pray that you would give us the heart of the Apostle Paul as he here is exhorting the Corinthians towards a greater unity in the church, and I just obviously love to talk and preach and to study the concept of unity within a church and help us to, th to see the things here that are burdening the apostle and the things that would either promote or things that would detract from the unity of any church. We know that unity is your heart. We know that your scriptures declare that it is in your sight a beautiful thing for the brethren to dwell in unity. And so, God, we pray your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, um, that is really the subject of this passage before us today. Um, I want to kind of sort of survey where we've come so far in the text, because we really reach a high point in 2 Corinthians right here. You might look at this passage and say, well, it's pretty straightforward, but in terms of its emotion, in terms of its thrust, it really is one of the most critical texts in all of the book or all of the sections of the letter because Paul here really bears his heart to the church. And uh, if anything in the book so far has sort of tipped you off to the fact that there are problems in the church, this is, passage makes it explicit. Um, but you see here in this text that this is one of Paul's actually rare instances where he addresses the church directly, where he addresses them by name. <clears throat> the, the NASB actually says, O Corinthians. And that's because Paul is using what is known as a vocative of address. In other words, it is a direct, formal address to the church, and he's trying to get their attention. He does this in Galatians. You know, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians. He does it in Philippians when he speaks directly to them. Uh, Paul does this, in other words, at times that are very critical in, the, in, the, in the, the flow of the letter that he is writing to sort of gather their attention and to really admonish them directly, and that's what he's doing here. But uh, so far, Paul has been pleading his case for greater unity in the church, and that's what he's doing here again. He's pleading a case to say, look, we have some relationship problems. There are issues that have arisen in the church of Corinth that need to be rectified. And you're going to see actually in chapter 7 when Titus is brought into the picture that it seems as if Titus was in a good uh, relationship with, 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 uh, with the Corinthians. But since that time, the relationship between Paul, his associates, and the church have greatly deteriorated. And so this is why Paul feels the need to sort of restore a loving relationship with his church, to restore fellowship to restore that union that he had with them. You know, Paul in this text really reveals his pastoral heart. 
He uses a metaphor that depicts him as a father to a child. He, the Corinthians are his spiritual children. That's made explicit in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Look, though you have many tutors in Christ, you have one Father. There's only one person who is responsible for bringing you to Christ in the first place, and that's the Apostle Paul. And so everything that Paul has talked about so far is meant to sort of reconcile these issues. All of the, all of the things that he went through, Paul feels as if he's dealt with it point by point. Everything that sort of hindered their relationship, he, he, he attacked it like an itemized list. He's gone through it. He's explained to them in chapter 1, for example, his travel arrangements and why it is that he did what he did by not coming directly to them. He also talks about in chapter 2 the fact that what he did, he did for their joy. He didn't do it for their sorrow. You remember that uh, in between these, these books, uh, First and Second Corinthians, in between there, there is a letter that was written, and it's called the severe letter, the sorrowful letter, because it was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in a rebukative tone, in a tone of correction, because there was problems, there was opposition, there was sin, and so Paul needed to address it, and it sounds like he came down harshly on the church. He came down with a real tone of correction, and he says in chapter 2, look, I wrote these things not to make you sorrowful. I did it for your joy. I did it for your correction, and we'll see in chapter 7 what that produced, that type of joy, that correction, that rebuke, but then the repentance that followed too. Uh, so he clarifies that point. Also, in uh, chapter 3, so I'm just kind of giving you a survey of where we've been and where we're at, at to this point. But in chapter 3, you remember, Paul says, look, we don't need letters of commendation as others do. We don't need to be recommended by James or the church in Jerusalem or anyone else. We don't need letters written by men stating that our ministry is genuine, legitimate, biblical, that it is that it is uh, uh, authoritative. He said, your very existence as a church is all the proof that we need. The fact that the Spirit has visited the Corinthians, the fact that the Spirit was working and shaping them and transforming them was all the proof that they needed to know that as a, as a minister of the new covenant, God's work was happening. God was accomplishing His work among them and that therefore he was a true minister of God. And as a true minister of God, chapter 4, you remember he denies, verse 2, he rejects, he denies the allegation of any type of hidden or shameful ways in mishandling the Word of God. He says, I have not been a peddler of the Word of God, as some, which that word implies the financial impropriety of saying that he had handled the, the Word of God and did the ministry in such a way that there was financial uh, accusation that could be leveled against him. This will come back into play back in chapter 8 and chapter 9 as we go into a lengthy discussion. I'm just going to warn you right now, we're going to go into a lengthy section on money. <laughs> okay, A lot of people visit churches and they come in and they don't know, but expositionally, we're just going through the Bible but we're coming upon two of the most foundational chapters in the New Testament dealing with the whole issue of finances in the church. And therefore, the Apostle Paul has 
committed his conscience in the sight of God, in the sight of man, and he says in chapter 5 that he ministers as one who knows that he has to give an account. He ministers as one that knows he will have to stand before the very judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, he ministers in the sight of God. He ministers in the fear of God, and that is the way that he carries out the ministry. And lastly, we already looked at this, but early on in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul made it very clear that he posed no offense, that he caused no offense. He posed no threat to the gospel coming to the church in saving power. So you see how Paul has clarified one issue after another. And now he comes to this emotional sort of just let, your, let all the facades down. Not that Paul was having a facade necessarily, but, but, but saying, look, he's going to bear his heart in the most explicit terms he could find. And he says here, and this is all built under this one overarching theme of this passage, this, these, these few verses right here. And that is what I've entitled Paul's passionate plea for revived unity in the church, revived unity in the church, because they had it, and somehow they lost it. But what I'm encouraged about in this whole passage is that he could regain it again, that unity can be restored if they reciprocate the heart that he is demonstrating here. Look at verse 11 with me again, verses 11 all the way to 13 one more time. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. In other words, he hasn't held anything back. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Open wide to us also. So here, foundationally, by restoring unity, three things were essential. There was three things that were essential for restoring the type of unity that the Apostle Paul envisions here. You know, and unity is worth it. I mean, I I hate to state the obvious, but it's true. Why do you think that throughout Paul's letters, I mean, Philippians probably more than any other letter, Paul unashamedly strives with, with, with great zeal and passion and with great intent for the unity of the church. And that is because, brothers and sisters, let's face it, we tend towards disunity. It is so easy for us to get off kilter, to find problems with one another. It is so easy, as uh, Paul wrote the Galatians, to bite and to devour one another and to consume one another because, obviously, we each have faults. We each have issues we each have our problems. We each have our, our sin and indwelling remnants of sin that cause us to, to, to be who we are. And uh, there are no perfect churches. And obviously, in a point of encouragement for me is that this is an apostolic church. I mean, you think about what's going on here on the surface of it. This is, a, this is the mighty Apostle Paul dealing with one of the churches he planted. He founded this church. Remember, he fathered this church. And the church is not receiving him. The church has shut up its heart, as it were, to the apostle. They have closed off their affections to the apostle Paul. And so it's encouraging to me for many reasons because realizing that unity is something we need to strive for, but if we lose it, or we ever hit any peaks and valleys in the unity and the harmony of our church, 
if we follow the biblical principles given to us in the Word of God, we can restore and revive that unity again. And that is certainly fuel for pastoral ministry. But let me, let me begin first by saying this. The three things that are needed. Number one, there's a need for genuine transparency. Genuine transparency. And now you see that by the metaphors that uh, he uses. He actually uses two metaphors that he's going to use here. The first one has to do with the body. He speaks of his mouth and he speaks of his heart. He speaks of his mouth and he speaks of his heart. When he speaks of his mouth, obviously he's talking about the ministry that is administered by his teaching, the things that he's communicated, the fact that he has spoken frankly to them. The fact is, chapter 4, verse 2 makes clear, he didn't handle the Word of God in a shameful way. He did not peddle the Word of God. He was not that type of minister that he depicts back in chapter 2 even. If you go back to chapter 2, he says, For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That was the kind of ministry that he had. He was absolutely honest. He had no hidden agendas. He had no hidden teachings that he was trying to sneak into the church as the false teachers do. And always remember that when Paul speaks of his speaking ministry, his teaching ministry, he always has an eye to the false teachers. That is uh, the background that sort of undergirds the whole letter. He's going to face these teachers and he's going to hit them head on later in the um, in the letter himself, he's going to talk about the contrast between him and the false teachers, the fact that he took advantage of no one. For example, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20, listen to the words here because they are explicit. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty, you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that I have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. So there Paul, quickly, quick to sort of counter the, the sort of the analogy that he's making there, the metaphor that he's using. He's using a metaphor here to reflect spiritual abuse, even so far as going to say someone smacks you or hits you in the face. It's just a, I think it's just an expression of saying, look, you tolerate it if people abuse you. Whatever it is, these false teachers. And isn't that remarkable to see? I mean, you and I, by the grace of God, I'm surrounded by, I'm thankful, I'm surrounded by a group of people who are discerning. But boy, you, you turn on the television and you just see these charlatans up there, right? And they're $5,000 suits, right? Usually white, and they usually stick out from everybody else. But they're up there, right, with, with uh, you know, with... Uh, See-through pulpits, and oh, I don't know if that's a sin, but you know, it's, it just goes with the whole thing, you know. They got, uh, they got you know, thrones up on stage, and, and it just, it's so obvious to us what's going on. There is spiritual abuse happening. There are people being taken advantage of. In his book, Christianity in Crisis, Hank Hennegraaff actually details and actually goes into accounts where faith teachers, prosperity teachers, have even cost people their lives insisting that they get off of medication and just trust the Lord. And people end up dying because they've listened to false teachers. See, we're surrounded. We're, we're surrounded by an ocean of dishonest ministers. 
we're surrounded by deception all around, and it's everywhere, and it's on a myriad of levels. You have the emergent church group, you have the seeker-sensitive crowd, you have all sorts of different models for ministry, you have the, 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 the market-driven church that all they care about is sort of producing some sort of, of product, of promoting some sort of, of method of church growth, and it's just amazing what people fall for nowadays. They care more about style than they do about substance. That is the truth. They care more about style than they do about substance. They want to know, is the pastor cool? They want to know, is the pastor good-looking? Well, you guys have had it, sorry. <laughs> you ain't never getting that, except for my wife, of course, right? <clears throat> but you know what I mean. People come in, and they, wanna, they, they immediately are attracted by the externals. How's the worship? How's the music? How's the people? How's the culture? Is everybody hip? Everybody cool? Is everybody in? You know, and the last thing they care about is, what did I learn today in that church? Was I taught anything in that church? Did I learn anything about the Bible? Uh, was there, did they magnify the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ in that, in that church? I just think we've conditioned ourselves to look for all the wrong things. Paul by contrast, was a godly minister. He was open and transparent. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you. Freely. There's been nothing hindering Paul in the way that he has approached them. If anything, Paul turns it around on them and says, oh, Corinthians, our hearts open wide. Our heart is open wide. And he's going to go on to say, look, you're restrained by your own affections. And so no doubt, Paul at times has been frank with the church. Even at times he have, he's come down on the church in a rebuketive tone. In his severe letter, we know if you turn back to chapter 2, he says that very thing. He says, for, I, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. So his whole purpose is not to make them sorrowful. He says that in verse 4. He said, it wasn't to make you sorrowful, but so that you might know the love with which I have especially towards you. You see, and that is another mark of a true minister. A true minister is not afraid to cause people temporary sorrow because of sin. Temporary sorrow because of some error where they've deviated or they've gone astray. They need correction. They need someone to come alongside of them and to, and to issue a rebuke if needed. To show, look, your path is not right. Your ways aren't right. Your practice is not right. We know what's going on in Corinth. We know the Corinthian church. It's a scandalous church. Just church that's filled with all sorts of scandal, all sorts of sins. And we'll talk about that later on in the book. But true love, dear brothers and sisters, confronts, right? True love warns. True love does not seek to be a flatterer. True love does not flatter somebody. But true love, a true love of a shepherd, that is, seeks to extract any dangerous, harmful, hazardous diseases from the flock. And that's what a shepherd would do even in the first century. It would inspect the flock. It would inspect each individual sheep and would look it over and run its hands through its, through its fur and to see, you know, it, does it have any, any parasites? Does it have any diseases? And it would do whatever it would have to do in order to cure that sheep. 
And that's what ministers are supposed to do. Paul does this in essence when he tells them in, in, uh, in chapter 13, look, examine yourself. See if you are even in the faith. See, Paul's whole passion is to build them up. In chapter 12, if you go there, 2 Corinthians 12, he makes this point very clear. His transparency was such that he sought the edification of the church. Listen to what he says there, 2 Corinthians 12, 19. He says, all this time, you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. Now, he uses that phrase over and over in the book, or he uses those constructions, in the sight of God and speaking in Christ. And I define that to say, in the sight of God, meaning in accountable to God, in the presence of God. That's what it means. Knowing our accountability before God first and foremost, and then speaking in Christ doesn't mean speaking as saved people. It means speaking in His authority in who He is. And then he says, and all for this purpose, for your upbuilding. That is the whole purpose of Paul's letters. That's his whole purpose of correcting them and rebuking them. He says the same thing back in chapter 1. He says, speaking of his apostolic authority, his authority as an apostle was given for one reason. It's amazing how Paul can just sort of sum up the whole ministry in these little phrases, right? He says in chapter 1, verse 24, of his apostolic authority, we don't lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. You see that? For in your faith you are standing firm. You see, the fact that the Corinthians were, to, to at least to this degree, they were standing in their faith, he can work with that. He can work with them. And what is he working them with them for? for their joy, so that they can increase in the knowledge and in the grace of God, so that they can increase in their capacity to delight themselves in the law of the Lord, so they, they, they can increase in the capacity to delight themselves in their salvation. That is what ministry is all about. I tell you what, it's true on a real practical level. I don't like coming to church and finding a bunch of depressed people and finding a bunch of upset people and angry people and bitter people. It's so glorious to walk in and to see people delighting in the things of God. That, that, just, that just gives more wind for my sails to do what I do. It's glorious to see people delighting themselves in the Lord. That is the aim of all ministry. 2 Corinthians 10, he says this, making it very clear, again, what his purpose, what his motive in the church is all about. 2 Corinthians 10, maybe a verse you've not considered. Verses 8 and 9, he says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, okay, because he needed to do that at times. He needed to assert his authority to let them know that he was indeed an apostle sent and commissioned by Christ with all authority. And Paul says, if I come, I will not spare anybody. <laughs> That's how much authority he had. So when need be, when push came to shove, oh, Paul was not going to shy away from executing church discipline or whatever it took. But he says this, the Lord gave it to us for building you up and not for destroying you. See, that's the purpose. 
the, the, the Corinthians had misread this. They had misread Paul's motives, his authority, and why he was speaking the way he was speaking. They didn't understand that he was speaking all for the purpose of edification. And you know what? Edification is the goal of the church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just to show you this. It's a passage that we look at time and again for church membership, for example. But just to show you that this is the master plan of the sovereign Lord for His church. The edification, I would say the self-replenishing of the church in an edification, in, towards edification. After he talks about giving pastors and teachers, he says what it's for, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. Not just the equipping of the pastors, not just the equipping of the deacons or the leaders, but for the equipping of the saints, plural, the whole church, for the work of service, to building up the body of Christ. You see that? Building it up, edification, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? It means until you and I begin to reflect all of the riches of the graces and virtues of Jesus Christ in our own life. Don't forget what sanctification is. Sanctification cannot be understood apart from Christ-likeness. What is the goal of sanctification after all? What is sanctification for? Is it just for you to adopt different habits? No, dear friends, it is for you in the new covenant to take upon uh, to a greater and greater and greater degree the very image of Jesus Christ. You're being conformed, after all, Paul says, into that very image. You're being conformed into the very image of His Son. That's what sanctification is. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see how the edification of the church cannot be divorced from sound doctrine. He says, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, every single one of you doing something, supplying something to the body for its overall edification. He says this, according to the proper working of each individual part, are you functioning correctly? Are you functioning in a healthy way? What does it do? It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I knew it was dangerous for me to go to that text because I could just spend all day right there. But that's what it is. For the building up of itself in love. The Christian church is a family of love. Christ-centered, Bible-saturated love. That's what it is. Spirit-wrought love. We ought to so love one another in the church. As the Apostle John says, we ought to lay down our life for one another. That is the love of the church. Speaking of love, that's the second element. Not only is there a genuine transparency, where Paul had that, and he's calling for reciprocation 
for, for that very purpose, but also this, genuine love. Listen to what he goes on to say if you go back now to our text. He says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. He uses this term, affections. But first, he says, you are restrained. And he says, you're restrained not by us. You know, as a matter of fact, grammatically, this word here, restrained, is actually in the passive voice, which means there is some sort of agent causing the restraining. Something is causing them to be restrained. And Paul is saying, it's not me. As a matter of fact, it is you, your own affections. You're restrained in yourself. That's amazing. This word restrained literally means to be confined into a narrow space. He, uses it, uh, uh, er, he, he used it earlier in chapter 4, verse 8, when he says that we are afflicted in every way. Remember there, he's cataloging all of his sufferings in chapter 4, verse 8. Everybody with me there? 4, 8, where he says, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's the word, crushed, confined, pressed down. That's what he's saying. In other words, their, their affections are kind of, they're, they're clogged up. They're not, they're not allowing the love, the Christian love that ought to be there to freely flow from them. They are restrained in their own affections. Paul makes it clear, therefore, that the, the problem lies within their own capacity to reciprocate. And that is never a good thing. It is never a good thing when a church has no capacity to reciprocate the love and the unity and the, and the fellowship with its leaders. That's never a good thing. The Word of God has something to say about this everywhere. Let me just read to you a couple of scriptures here. It's never a good thing in the church when... Uh, when people feel, sorry, I'm hearing something, but I can't do anything about it. Uh, when people feel this inability to respect their, or to love and appreciate their leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 17. Timothy, is this on or not? Did it die? It's on? Okay, I can't tell up here. But 1 Timothy 5.17, okay. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Think about that. Do you reciprocate that type of honor to your leaders? Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And you know, the temptation even for a pastor is to be embarrassed about passages like this. I'll be honest, it's hard for me even to muscle them out of my mouth. Hey, you need to give me double honor. Hey, you need to obey your leaders. But for my own sanctification, I have to, in the sight of God, speak the truth in love. I have to tell you that unless you respect your elders, you should go to a church where you can. And you can't find a church. You know, it just amazes me. It always breaks my heart. It amazes me when I find people that church after church after church, they can't find anywhere where they respect anyone. They can't go anywhere and submit to anyone's authority. It's really a sad and it's a very, very serious symptom of a very serious spiritual problem in that person's life. I've met people, they've come here. They've come to our church. And I ask them, well, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church because, well, I have this view. And I can't find a church that has this view. Well, how long have you been looking? Four years. Four years? You can't find a church? 
You might want to move out of state. <laughs> go wherever you got to go, okay? If you got to go to John MacArthur himself, if you got to go to John Piper himself, if you got to go to R.C. Sproul himself, whoever your hero is, man, for the sake of your soul, go there and submit to your leaders. Respect them and give them double honor. That's only right. Now, Peter probably gives us one of the most uh, in-depth treatments of all of this, the over-under relationship, 1 Peter chapter 5, where he really focuses in on the duties of the, of the elder. He says, I exhort the elders among you, this is 1 Peter 5.1, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not in compulsion, don't force people to do things, but voluntarily, you've got to get people to do it willingly, and you yourself have to have a willing heart. He says, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. Don't do things for money. He says, but with eagerness. You want to serve. You don't, you're not, you're not, there's no trepidation to serve with eagerness. You want to do it. Uh, I tell this to um, uh, the fellowship of our elders and deacons when we get together, and I've, sh- I've shared this with different people. The difference between a good leader is this. A bad leader will do it because it needs to be done, and he's willing to do it. He'll plug the hole wherever, the de- wherever it needs to be done. A good leader is somebody that wants to do it. He can't wait to do it. There's, a, there's a, a calling, there's a sense of divine vocation over them that this is what God has called them to do. They're eager to do it. They want the responsibility. They don't want to shirk it at any chance they get. They want the responsibility. But yet, he says, so careful, don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he goes to the sheep. He goes to the congregation. In verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And there I do believe that the word there, elder, presbyteros, is not talking about people who are older, but he's talking about ecclesiastically the pastor, the elder, the overseer. That is the context. And all of you, Clothe yourself in humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. This is the way that Paul lived his life. He cared so much. He he had such an intense passion. You remember in his litany of sufferings in chapter 11, after he goes through all the things that he'd gone through, being beaten, being shipwrecked, being hung, all of these things, what does he end the list with? He says... After all these things, my intense concern for the churches. Now, I looked up this word intense. It's an intense word. The word means, the word purao literally means to be set on fire. It means to be, to be burning with some sort of passion. In this context, in 2 Corinthians 11, it is anxiety. Paul is filled with intense anxiety angst over the church. He was ablaze with the deepest possible concern. And trust me, I was praying as I was reflecting over this last night, God, give me this heart right here. Um, I need to be ablaze and I need to have intense, on-fire concern for our church. That's what I need. 
And indeed, do it exactly the way that Paul has it here. Need to be in love. It doesn't mean you go around and you're so worried about everything, you got to micromanage everything. You know? That's not what he's calling for. It's, it's not the intense concern of a manager necessarily, but it's the intense concern of a parent, of a father. That's the way that he goes on to say. Paul saw himself, remember, as their father in the faith. Paul had no children, but his children were the children of God. Richard Baxter, in his book, The Reformed Pastor, he gives several principles for elders and how they should shepherd correctly, foundational principles, and love is one of them. And let me just read to you what he says. He says, the whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love toward our people. You know, love scares people. Love scares pastors. Pastors are afraid to love. Just be honest with you. They're afraid to let people in. They're afraid to to bring people into the bosom of their souls with them. I'll be honest with you. I've gone to churches where before, you know, being a pastor myself and going to churches to see prospective churches where maybe I could attend, and I have felt almost almost a coldness from certain pastors, almost a frown of, what are you up to? What do you want? You know, that kind of thing. And I, I can sympathize to a degree because I know that you want to guard your, your sheep. You want to guard your flock. But at the same time, do we have this fatherly love? Is there this fatherly concern? Baxter goes on to say, we must feel toward our people. It's not just enough to manage. It's not just enough to be a good business person. It's not just enough to be a CEO and run things well. You have to get emotionally involved in the lives of your people. He says, as a father towards his children, yes, he says, the tenderest love of a mother cannot surpass ours. We must even travail in birth till Christ be formed in them. And he took that directly from Galatians 4.19. There Paul travailing over the Galatians to see Christ take shape in them. But in the Corinthian situation, the issue is the heart. It was the people's hearts. The whole church had sort of blocked their heart to the Apostle Paul. Think of it. This is a factionalism on a whole different level. This is a church clique run wild. They're keeping Paul out. They, they won't let him in. And Paul is trying to sort of reforge this unity that he had with the church. He wanted the affections to be genuine. So he calls on their affections, and you know the word affections means the inward parts. It was used medically of internal organs, like the liver and the the heart and the the lungs. This word splachna, it even just sounds ugly, right? Internal body parts. That is sort of what he's getting at. He's saying at the very depth of your soul, do you love me? what Paul is saying. Do you love me or are you restrained? Now, last thing, because this is what it's all flying towards, is not just genuine transparency, genuine love, but ultimately genuine fellowship. Genuine fellowship because that is the purpose of the whole thing. Paul wants to see unity in the church. There has to be a genuine participation in the church. There has to be a back and forth. Now, where is fellowship in this text? 
If you go back to our text for today, he says in verse 13, Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. The word just actually means open wide. That's it. That's all he says. But the word like exchange, if you picked up on it, it's sort of a rare word. It doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, one of the only other places that it appears is in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. And you know what it means there? It means God giving a recompense for living a homosexual lifestyle. The word literally means to repay, to recompense someone. And what Paul is basically saying is that through love, through fellowship, the church was to repay Paul for the love that he had showed them. He shows them love, he shows them affection, and he expects that they will reciprocate that love and reciprocate that affection. And he appeals to them again as a father to a child. This is not unique to Paul. This is not unique to the Apostle Paul at all, but uh, other apostles like John especially. The Apostle John, perhaps better than anyone, is accustomed to talking to the church uh, as a father would a child. You know, John, the Apostle, my little children, it is the last hour, my little children, do not sin, my little children, abide in Him, my little children, he says, don't let anyone deceive you. He uses the word technia. And it just amazes me something of the unity that we ought to have with one another along these familial lines. Paul was a man who had lost everything. The church was his life. He had forsaken everything. We don't have a whole lot of inside information on Paul's personal life his family, his parents. We don't know if he was married. It doesn't seem that scholars seem to conclude that he probably didn't have any, he didn't have a wife, probably didn't have, if he did, she probably left him. But we don't know a whole lot about Paul. All we know is that Paul was 100% consecrated to the work of the gospel. And because of that, Paul was like a man without a people. Paul was on his own until God brought him into the church and you know what? When you get saved, when you become a Christian, God doesn't save you to leave you in isolation. He doesn't leave you to dwell in the Lone Ranger Christian mentality of I will do it on my own. I know more than anyone does. I don't fit into that church or that church. I have certain views about this or certain views about that that don't allow me to go to this church or that church. That's not what God saves us for. He saves us to be in a family. And he saves us to be family and to love each other with familial love in all purity. It's beautiful. The church is such a magnificent entity, is it not? It is the family of God, and we will fellowship as a family forever and ever and ever. And I think that's why God hates division. He fears, the apostle fears finding division in the church. He says that later on. He says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I will find that there are strives and divisions among you. It's never a good thing. But this is the only way that we can have the unity that Paul envisions. We need to have a genuine transparency. We've want to. We got to be real. It does no good to walk into a church and be plastic every week and just be fake. 
right? Where you're struggling all week long, you're living a terrible, terrible life in the flesh, you're struggling, and then you come in here and you put it on a face for an hour and then go home and you're somebody else. It does no good to do that. It does no good also not to have love, to be shut up, to be shut off to the fellowship of God's people. And it doesn't do any good either not to fellowship, not to join yourself with God's people, not to share time together. Woe is you if you do not like to hang out with other Christians. And if you call yourself a Christian, it is not a good sign. That's not good fruit. I would say examine yourself. See if you're in the faith because that is not evidence of a believer. A believer cannot. He does not. She does not. They cannot but help to be with the people of God because they love their new family in Christ. They've been taken out of the family of Adam and they've been put into the family of Christ. And now this is our identity. This is our entire life now together. Paul says to the Corinthians to live and to die together. Wow, I don't know if we're all there yet, right? (laughs) I want to be. I'd love to be. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the possibility of such unity. And Lord, we thank you for the possibility of, Lord, having the type of fellowship that Scripture envisions for our lives. I thank you for the type of ministry that we can have here at Heritage Grace if we stick to what Scripture declares, if we are not afraid to commit ourselves to the whole counsel of God. And Father, I pray that you continue to work this unity in our lives, work this unity in our church, and we just pray, God, that you would work uh, throughout our lives during the week, that we would meet with one another, that we would call one another, that we would pray for one another and admonish one another in the things of God. We need the encouragement. Lord, we need to be reminded over and over of these things because we are so quick, as the old hymn goes, to leave the God we love. Father, have mercy on us and keep us on that narrow path. Pray you bless our fellowship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.